This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and welcome to the program today. Uh, today's one of those great days. You know, school's starting to go back, summer's winding down, and our guest in the studio will be Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. Dr. Ratchford is an ophthalmologist. She's a medical doctor specializing in diseases of the eye. And by way of full disclosure, she's my eye doctor. And uh, when I moved to this area, uh, met Dr. Ratchford, and she runs such a wonderful office at the Ratchford Eye Center. So she's going to be in here chatting with us a little bit about diseases of the eye, and we're going to take questions from everyone. I'm going to give you the numbers now, and then I'll give you them periodically. It's 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. This day in medicine, August 26, 1842, Dr. Heinrich Quinke was born. Dr. Quinke is an interesting name because he is the first person to perform lumbar puncture. He designed the equipment and performed a lumbar puncture, also known as a spinal tap, the much-dreaded spinal tap. When people hear that word, they grimace immediately. It is not what it seems to be in the sense that it is not a very painful test to be done. Uh, Today, we do the same test Dr. Quinky was doing uh, back in the 1800s. And essentially, it's a way of extracting spinal fluid that surrounds the brain and spinal cord to do studies on it to find out if there's infection, inflammation, or what may be going on. It's a real true link to the brain. And it's interesting because we still do it the same way. Now, techniques have gotten better. The instrument, the needle that's used has gotten better from that standpoint. But basically, it is the same procedure. One thing we do now that causes a lot less discomfort is we do it under fluoroscopy often. So with x-ray guidance, you can actually see exactly where to place the needle allowing you to use a much smaller needle to do it and less chance of discomfort. So we celebrate uh, Dr. Quinky's uh, birthday today, uh, and uh, we remember the fact that here was this German physician who came up with a technique that is still very relevant in seeing patients with neurologic problems today. On last week's show, we had Dr. Samantha Scarnio. And Dr. Scarnio, we talked about health protocols and scholastic sports and specifically sudden death in sports. My column this week in the Norwich Bulletin was about that, and specifically about the state of Connecticut rating only 38th out of 51 states and the District Columbia surveyed in terms of having protocols in place for emergencies in sports, whether they be cardiac, neurologic, or heat-related. Ironically, on the same day that 
my article was published, my alma mater, Mount St. Michael, had a tragedy in that a young man trying out for the football team collapsed and died on the field. Right away, everyone rushes to judgment. Uh, and what was interesting was that in this circumstance, we do not know the cause of death of the young athlete, but here they were working out early in the morning, the coolest part of the day, shorts and T-shirts, no pads, just running, and a young man suddenly collapses. So we still don't know that. But these tragedies happen in sports. Have they always happened? Yes. Are we seeing more of it now? Probably because we have so many more people participating in sports. But again, for parents, keep in mind, get out there, and when you're looking for an organization or a school for your child to participate in sports in, Make sure they have emergency action plans. Make sure there is a defibrillator present on the field for practice and for games. These are key items that you need to really pay attention to. And the other things we talked about were some of the signs of concussion. Actually, just got published. UConn had me do a a quick uh, Facebook Live interview. Uh, And if you go on Facebook Live under UConn, you get to see that. Uh, One of my pet discussions, as people know, the regular listeners, is vaccination. Well, it's because we have those people who say, I'm not going to have my children vaccinated, which is, I even hate to use the word, but it's stupid. It's just foolish. Well, the data are showing that we're winning. Our side is winning. More and more young people are getting vaccinated. And that means their childhood vaccinations and the vaccination for the human papillomavirus, HPV. The interesting thing in an article published this week was that the HPV, the human papillomavirus vaccination, lags others in terms of its readiness to be used, in terms of people being willing to have their teenage child receive this vaccination. I'm always told or asked from people, and they comment, when are we going to find a cure for cancer? Well, folks, we have. It's called the vaccination. The HPV vaccination has been proven unequivocally to avoid certain forms of cancer in young men and women, specifically cervical cancer in young women and certain cancers in young men. That's why our teenage children get vaccinated. So what's the argument against it? I think it's denial more than anything, and and that's what most of the experts do. I think people do not want to think that their teenage child might be sexually active. Well, wake up, folks, uh, you know, and face reality. And one of the realities is we need to put a dent in the frequency of cancer in this country, and we have at least one tool to do that in the form of a vaccination. So we need to get past all our inhibitions and make sure our children are adequately vaccinated against a viral disease, the human papillomavirus. And we know that there are direct links to these viruses and cancer. One other article that was published in Neurology this week I wanted to mention was the use of telemedicine. I've been a big advocate for telemedicine. Uh, We have now started to use it in our clinic at the University of Connecticut, where I can do follow-ups with athletes I have seen for concussion. So a young athlete, a student, comes to the office. I do a full evaluation. We get a workup. But now you have the issue of the follow-up visit. Follow-up visits 
are hard because now the child may lose time in school. Parents got to take time off from work, drive them to the office. What we have instituted now, and, and thanks to the technology folks, is a HIPAA-compliant way of going into the training room or the physical therapist's office to conduct some basic tests to allow us to make a judgment on clearing the athlete to go back to sports. People do not have to come to the office, do not have to take time off, and it's adequate. In the article published in Neurology, they looked at the use of telemedicine in follow-up evaluations for Parkinson's disease, and they found that they were just as effective as a visit to the office. Again, these are follow-up visits. These are not new patient visits, which are often much more detailed. But first of all, there was huge amount of patient satisfaction because they did not lose an average of 90 minutes in travel time for their evaluation for Parkinson's disease. And it did not adversely affect the treatment of those patients. It also helps when you're doing research protocols. So some people have to you know, volunteer to sign up for a drug study or, or something of that nature. You don't have to keep going back to the office. Again, the technology has advanced so much that you can now use that to conduct an adequate examination. I spoke to somebody today, a, a surgeon, uh, my colleague, Dr. Mazaka, and he was able to use it for a follow-up. Somebody did a repair of a biceps tendon. The patient lives in Maine and was able to quickly – quickly use this technology and evaluate the patient postoperatively. So again, we're moving in that direction. And I think medicine is moving in that direction and patients um, will find this to be much more convenient overall. We're going to take a short break and then we're going to be back with my guest today, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Uh, just to let you all know that uh, I was at Mohegan last night at the Mohegan Sun Casino uh, for the basketball game. And uh, they have a comedian there tonight, uh, Sebastian Maniscalco. I've never heard of him. Uh, but the vice president of entertainment, Tom Cantone, who's been a guest on our program, said, you can't believe this. This fellow has sold out the arena. That's 10,000 seats. And he's performing in the round. To get that. Not a lot of performers do that. So I've never heard of this comedian, but uh, apparently he has a huge following. So I was directed to go to YouTube and look at his stuff. And I have to tell you, folks, this is a funny man, uh, especially it's ethnic humor. Uh, it's from what I could tell, pretty clean humor. And it was just summed up a lot of the things as we were growing up, whether you be Italian or other ethnic group, uh, you know, how we responded to the doorbell ringing. Uh, it was a moment of glee. Uh, now it's a moment of suspicion, uh, to say the least. Um, I want to welcome my guest today who's uh, with us, Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. Dr. Ratchford is an ophthalmologist. She is the director of the Ratchford Eye Center in Berlin. And uh, Mary Gina, welcome. Oh, thank you for having me again. Uh, it's, it's really great to have you here. Uh, we have a question already. So let's talk. We'll get to the question. I wanted to talk a little bit about just to kind of explain to everyone the difference between an ophthalmologist, optometrist, and optician. Because 
This is an area of confusion at multiple levels. Right, absolutely. They all start with the same letter and we're all in the same field. So um, I am an ophthalmologist, and what this means is that uh, for me to get that degree, uh, I do attend medical school, so I get my MD after four years. And then after that, we do specific training through our internship and residency programs to learn about diseases um, of the eye, both medical and surgical. And then beyond that, uh, one can complete a fellowship in one of the subspecialties of um, ophthalmology. And if you, you know, the, the eye is only the size of a walnut, and even that, there's many specialties. Um, so they're more about the surgical uh, treatment of either retinal diseases, glaucoma, uh, comprehensive uh, general ophthalmology. Now, an optometrist does also go through uh, years of training. However, they uh, do not treat um, surgical diseases of the eye. Um, their their main focus is glasses, contact lens, healthy eye exams. Uh, they can can treat some medical diseases of the eye, but their primary focus is uh, primary eye care. And then an optician, uh, those are the folks that will help fit you with glasses. And again, they're not just the style folks. They do know about the optics of the eye, the different technology that goes in with glasses these days. And so they have their own uh, training. So basically the difference is the, the MD is the, the most comprehensive with the years of training you know, followed by the optometrists who can treat, you know, general diseases uh, of the eye, but but mainly are are the folks that will look um, at your healthy eye uh, and uh, fit you with glasses or contact lenses. Thank you for that explanation. I, th- I think let's grab the question right now. We have Danny from Glastonbury's on the line. Danny, welcome to the show. Uh, hi, doctor. Um, yeah, I've had uh, BRVO for several years now. My doctor's been monitoring it. And he said that um, I'm developing edema and that he thinks I may be um, requiring Avastin injections in my eye. Yes, yes. Uh, Right. So um, just to kind of re-educate everybody, a BRVO stands for a branch retinal vein occlusion. And with the anatomy of the eye, there's one main vessel that brings in the blood. That's the artery and the vein drains it back. You can get an occlusion or a blockage of one of those branches of the arteries. Most often the reason is hypertension. That's a lot of the reason why you might develop these blockages. So when the blood can't drain out properly, it can pool. The place that we worry about it pooling is in the macula. And fluid pooling in the macula is what we call macular edema. When your macula doesn't work properly, you can't see. You can develop blurred vision. You can develop distortion of the vision. Generally speaking, if that doctor can't correct you to 2040 vision or better, then you may be a candidate for, they're called, um, Avastin is one of three medicines that we inject into the eye, and they work to help your retina to absorb that fluid. So if the doctor feels that the vision is threatened or could potentially, then that is the state-of-the-art treatment these days. Um, And it sounds kind of barbaric. They were actually putting a needle into your eye to inject this medicine. But it's very, very effective in keeping and preserving vision. In the past, we would have to laser those little areas that are leaking, but now we have the uh, these Avastin, Ilea, and Lucentis are the three medicines that we use 
to effectively treat this condition. And even if that blood is going away, it can become chronic um, if if there's no what we call collateral vessels kind of draining that blood back out. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, your scenario is not um, is, is fairly common with the numbers of folks who are being treated for hypertension, diabetes these days. Um, but I think uh, I think you're on the right track. Oh, good. Danny, uh, thanks for the question. Dr. Lessig, can I ask you sure. a quick question? Yeah. When Dr. Felice was on uh, several weeks ago, I yep. called about post-polio. Yeah. Because I have that, too. Mm-hmm. And um, are you familiar, is he what could be referred to as a physiatrist? No. Uh, a physiatrist is an MD who specializes in uh, physical therapy and rehabilitation. Uh-huh. Uh, Dr. Felice is a neurologist who specializes in neurology and neuromuscular diseases, specifically neuromuscular medicine. Right. So he... Conjunction with physiatrists, he for does people with post polio. Correct at the hospital that, for special care. Oh, okay. Because I was thinking about going to see him, and I, I, I keep hearing I should probably have a physiatrist and a neurologist, and I didn't know if he had both there. He does. They they approach it as a team. They have physical therapy, occupational therapy, and physiatrists at the hospital for special care. Oh, okay. I highly recommend you go over and see him. All right. Uh, thanks, Doctor. Take That's care. Good. Nice talking to you, Danny. Okay, thanks thank for you. listening. Uh, it, what's interesting about the BRVO is these medications that really work to absorb. How many injections do they need? Is it one injection or is it a series? Yeah. So um, initially, it, it it's not a one-time thing, unfortunately. And generally speaking, you get one injection. One month later, you probably need a second injection and one month after that. So at least you start with three injections. And then depending on how you respond, depending on... Um, you know, how much your vision can improve or how much that fluid goes away, then it's pretty custom for each patient. But I would say the majority of them, it is an ongoing treatment, um, sometimes requiring shots every six to eight to 12 weeks, you know, ongoing. Uh, I think we should also explain to folks the difference between a vein vein occlusion and an arterial occlusion. Right. That's uh, a, Just so you know, because there's a big difference. Yeah, there's a very good point. So when you have any type of arterial occlusion, you can think of it um, almost as having a stroke to the eye. So when the la- there's no blood flow for even up to 90 seconds, you can sustain damage to those tissues that can lead to uh, vision loss that is non-recoverable. If you have your central retinal artery occlusion where there's no blood going into the eye, uh, you really can essentially become legally blind in a very short period of time. If you have a central retinal vein occlusion, that also can lead to profound vision loss. But we do have avenues that uh, can be treated. But but by far and away, having the stroke to your eye can not only lead to vision loss, but it does give you more at risk for having a stroke uh, to your brain. And that is a concern as well. Uh, I think what we'll do is let's take a short break. Well, well actually, let's take a break now. Uh, I have Nadine on the line. Nadine, we're going to ask you to hold on because uh, we want to get to your question. So I'm going to give everybody the phone numbers now, 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me directly here on the show at info at alessimd.com. Uh, we're going to take a break, then we're going to be back answering questions, and we're going to talk about some new innovations in treatment of diseases of the eye. Our guest today is Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford. And you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. 
I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today we're visiting with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford of the Ratchford Eye Center. Uh, just so everybody has the information, the Ratchford Eye Center is in Berlin. It's 860-829-8939, correct? That's right. Is that right? Okay. That's it. the phone number um, to reach Dr. Ratchford and her entire group, um, who are just absolutely wonderful, great office. Um, you know, here's what they stay on time. All right. That, that's how, what I look for in an office. And that's what I mostly we stay on time. That's what I try. push for. Okay. <laughs> Um, but uh, with that, and, and we have questions backing up. Uh, Mary Jean, I just so we give somebody, everybody kind of a basis to work off of. Let's talk about a little bit of basic eye anatomy. Sure. Because we're going to be talking about retinopathy, cataracts, things like that. Can we just go over for everyone so they understand the lens and retina and what everything does? Yeah. You know, I think the easiest way to think about it is the structures in the front of the eye and the structures in the back of the eye. The structures in the front of the eye include the tears, the cornea, the lens. The iris is that, uh, you know, the dark part that has the pupil. But all those structures essentially are responsible for focusing light onto the back of the eye. And in the back of the eye, you have the optic nerve, which carries that information to the brain, and the retina, which absorbs the light. There is a specialized portion of the retina called the macula, and I'm very glad that I didn't get that many calls about people looking at the eclipse without their glasses on. We were going to get to that. I okay. applaud those. The public service message, I think, got out there. I think I had two calls, and nobody came up with any retinopathy, luckily. Um, but the macula is a very specialized part of the eye that is responsible for that fine, detailed vision. Um, so we've got the cornea, the iris, the lens, Focusing light onto the back of the eye, the blood vessels, um, as we with the last patient with the vein occlusion, also p- provide blood there, but the macula, the retina, and the optic nerve. All right, with that, now that we've gotten the basic anatomy out of the way, we're going to take uh, Nadine's question. Nadine's calling in from Longmeadow. Nadine, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you very much. Yeah. So the question I have is, uh, I have a relative I'm responsible for who uh, we we our understanding is has both issues with macular edema slash retinopathy and cataracts. Okay. Um, so um, my our understanding was that we should attack the retinopathy and macular edema issue first because something about if we did the cataracts first, the macular the retinopathy could get worse. And and I guess so. My question about that is if we do the uh, ret edema slash retinopathy, because I know the recommendation was to go for those shots in the eye, as you had recommended. Um, is there some kind of time frame or something that you look for to be able to know, like, hey, we can go from the one procedure to the yeah, other? Yeah, that's a very, very good question, because as, as our... Nadine, our pop- I'm going dis- to hang up, and then we're going to answer the question. Sound good? Sure. All right. Thank okay. you. Yeah, thank you, Nadine. So this is a you know a common occurrence these days, because as, as folks get older, they can develop the retinopathy and macular edema either related to diabetes, vein occlusion, uh, either central or or um, branch. And then, of course, as you get older, you naturally develop a cataract, which is a cloudiness of the lens of the eye. But absolutely, we do address that macular edema first. And simply because when we do a cataract operation, no matter when you make an incision, there's inflammatory mediators that are produced. And those inflammatory mediators can contribute to macular edema. So it's almost like adding insult to injury. And that's just the natural process that occurs whenever you make an incision. So if we can manage that edema as best we can with the injections and then do the cataract surgery, 
um, it minimizes the risk of additional edema. There is a time frame. We generally like to time the injections, and this is where the retina specialists work with the cataract surgeon, that we like to operate when that medicine is at its peak effect, which is generally two weeks after the injection. And so there is a little bit of coordination there. Um, but but absolutely, the, the retinopathy and the edema should be addressed uh, before the cataract surgery is performed. That's a really interesting combination of problems. I didn't realize how... how... Yeah, because you're going to get a cataract just as you age, and yeah. then having a comorbid, having another disease on top of it, you do have to, you know, kind of think of, of of treating them, you know, together. So the timing can become important in the situation. Uh, we have Vanessa from Cheshire. Vanessa, welcome to the program. Hi, how are you? Okay, you have a question. Um, yes, I'm suffering from adult strabismus, also known as adult cross-eyedness. Uh, it started about three years ago, and I'm really on the fence about getting surgery or staying with my glasses because I have a very heavy nearsightedness prescription, and I have now I have prisms in both lenses. Yeah, um, yeah. All right, we'll get Vanessa. Going to hang up, and then we're going to answer sure. your question. Thank you. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Vanessa. Yeah, I, I can understand your your concern. So, uh, double vision can happen from all sorts of reasons. If you have a muscle imbalance that can lead to double vision either vertical or horizontal, uh, where your eyes just don't want to work together. We can put a prism in a glass, which can help keep your eyes together. However, there is a limit practically as to how much prism we can put in a pair of glasses because they can become heavy and cumbersome and give you some peripheral distortion. So generally, if you have 10 diopters of prism or less, that can be acceptable in a pair of glasses, but when you get up to the 12 and the 15, often eye muscle surgery can be um, a successful outcome in that it can reduce the double vision and get you in a more practical set of glasses. Um, there are uh, special doctors that specialize in this kind of surgery. They're generally in the pediatric world because that's where most of the uh, strabismus surgery is performed. Um, but there is a practical limit as to how much prism that you can get in a pair of glasses. And then surgery, you know, can be a another option. Do you recommend surgery in those situations? Um, I think if the double vision is you know, preventing you from driving safely on the road, from from reading, from you know holding on the job, then then sometimes it is it's, it's necessary to do. Um, glasses, you know, are also a good option. And again, it's sort of that risk benefit analysis where you know there's no risk to having a pair of glasses on your face, um, but there can be cumbersome if you have a lot of prism on top of a strong prescription. Great question. Uh, let's get another quick question here. We have Anne from Kensington has a question about. Microfocus laser surgery. Ann, welcome to the show. Oh, welcome. Thank you. Um, just a comment here. Um, when the doctor's on, I can hardly hear over the phone. I can hear you very well, but I really can't hear the doctor. Okay, the question is about the microfocus laser surgery, how successful it is, and some talk about that, the, the actual surgery. Okay, so we're going to hang up, and you're going to listen to us on the radio. Oh, thank you so much. And you'll much. be able to hear us better. Thank you so okay. much. Okay. Okay, so um, I'm not 100% sure which micro-focus laser that you're referring to. Um, we do do laser in the setting of retinal disease. We don't do it as often because we're doing the injections. 
We do do um, a micropulse laser for those that have glaucoma. Um, glaucoma is a disease where the eye pressure is higher than normal, and there are a variety of options that we have. Um, but there is uh, a couple of lasers that we do in the office, but there is something called a micropulse laser that we can do in the over in the operating room uh, to treat some cases of glaucoma. The other laser that we do now um, is in the setting of a cataract operation. We call that a femtosecond laser. It is micro pulses, so maybe that's what you're referring to. Um, we've been using it at our surgery center oh, for a, a few years now. Um, it is very, it's, it's a safe procedure. Its main benefit is reducing the amount of astigmatism one has that we can correct at the time of cataract surgery. It also can soften up very dense cataracts so that they're not as difficult to remove. Um, but yes, I think it's it's really, uh, many of the surgeons in this area do use that at the time of cataract surgery. So if you're you know, have a cataract and you're looking to that, then perhaps your doctor can kind of go over the pros and cons of that particular procedure in your particular eye to see if you would benefit from that new technology. It's very interesting. I, I wasn't even aware of this micro pulse uh, laser. Um, less, fewer complications, I'm assuming. With the... With the micro pulse. For the glaucoma or yeah, for the cataracts? Both. So the micropulse laser for glaucoma, um, so generally with glaucoma, it's a problem with pressure. A lot of our efforts are with our eye drops are help to improve the outflow, to improve the fluid as it drains out of the eye. But there is a limit as to how much medications can work. We have more extensive surgery in the form of trabeculectomy and uh, aqueous shunt devices that also can help the outflow. So this micropulse laser kind of fits in the middle where maybe you don't need quite the extensive surgery, but the jobs aren't working so well. And what it does is it reduces the cells that produce fluid with the laser as a way to lower the pressure. So we don't use it in early stages of glaucoma. We don't use it in folks who can tolerate an eye drop. We may, again, use it in the patient who may not need an extensive operation for glaucoma, but we're looking for more better pressure control. So interesting. Uh, we're going to take a short break because we're going for a new record here because I've got questions backed up. So we're going to get, grab a short break, then get back to Scott and Kay uh, with their questions. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we are visiting today with Dr. Mary Gina Ratchford of the Ratchford Eye Center. If you wish to schedule an appointment, 860-829-8939. I highly recommend that you get over and see Dr. Ratchford if you're having eye problems. Uh, with that, let's get right back to questions. Uh, we have uh, Scott from Waterbury on the line. You had a question about poor circulation in the optic nerve. Scott, welcome. Hello. I have. Uh, that's what, exactly what I have, and it's called tailing of my optic nerve. And I had some trauma, but that's not, uh, they're not sure if that's what caused it or not. And I went to see a neuro-ophthalmologist, okay. and they said uh, there's nothing to do about it. And so I was wondering if there is anything to do about it. Yeah. All right, we're going to put you on hold. We're going to drop you there, and then we're going to answer your question. Sound good? 
Yeah, I, I'm I'm not sure if there's plaque in there or what it is, but my visual field test uh, that's where the uh, that's where it shows up. All right, sounds good. Let's get it. Let's get to it. Okay, okay, Scott. Yeah, thank that's you. That's a new term uh, for, for me. Tailing. Uh, so when we look in the eye, we do look at the optic nerve. And the reason that you saw a neuro-ophthalmologist is because that is the connection from your eye to the brain. There are many conditions that can lead to optic nerve pallor. So pallor is just a finding. It's not necessarily uh, a specific disease. And when your optic nerve is healthy, we look at it's pink. It You can see the fine blood vessels along the optic nerve head. But when you start to lose those small blood vessels in the circulation, it's almost a sign of nerve damage. And what we see is that pale nerve. When your nerve is pale, it definitely can affect your peripheral vision, and that's why you did the visual field test. Now, you were appropriately you know, looked at by the neuro-ophthalmologist because they really want to look to see, well, what is the cause of your pallor? Trauma can lead to it as, a, as an end-stage kind of a condition. There are other things called um, ischemic optic neuropathy, which is poor circulation to the nerve, primarily related to perhaps sleep apnea, hypertension. Uh, sometimes if you've had a brain injury, you can see that um, as a cause. And, you know, unfortunately, we don't really even know how to measure that circulation to the optic nerve and never mind treat it. We do look for those tr treatable conditions. We look for sleep apnea. We look for hypertension. We look for diabetes. Uh, we look for those sorts of things. We do, um, we can measure the eye pressure. End-stage glaucoma can also lead to nerve pallor. So that is one thing we can measure and treat is lowering the pressure. Um, but I'm sure the neuro-ophthalmologist put you through a battery of tests to try to identify those treatable causes. Uh, but sometimes we can't tell you exactly why it happened because, again, it's a late-stage finding. And also, unfortunately, there are really no good treatment options once that damage is done. And so important to have a visual field test to really get an idea of where that spot is and where you're missing vision. Right, absolutely. And those of my patients who at least who have taken the visual field, it's 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 not the most fun test to take. You have to sit um, in a chair and you have to put your head in this bowl and they cover one eye and they present lights and you press a button when you see the light flash in the periphery. The test takes anywhere from three to five minutes, no needles or anything, but it really can get a lot of information about the neurologic aspect of your vision and your eye. We can diagnose brain tumors the visual field, we can certainly diagnose glaucoma um, and other things like that. So yes, it, it's an important thing to measure when you're getting your eyes done, even if you don't have any blurred vision. Okay, we're going to grab uh, Kay. Uh, Kay, you had a question about edema of the cornea? Yes. Um, I wondered if the sinuses have any impact, the facial sinuses have any impact on the extent of the edema, and can the edema um, decrease over time. Okay, great. We're going to get to your question right now. Thanks for calling. Right. So um, the cornea, as we referred to earlier, is the window of the eye. It's the first place that the light hits after your tears. When we look at the anatomy of the eye, the eye is contained in the orbit, and that's the bony structure that encases the, the eye and the optic nerve. But surrounding those are the sinuses. And there are some air cells that are a thin wall that can separate the orbit from the sinuses. Many people have sinus swelling that can give them pain around the eye, often um, 
you know, your teeth can hurt or that lower orbital rim area can hurt. You can get some facial swelling, but not necessarily corneal swelling. And I would say if you've got significant corneal swelling, I would look for other reasons why that's the case. Common things can be something called Fuchs dystrophy, which is a corneal disease. Sometimes medications can do it. Steroids in particular can make your eye pressure go up. That can be a source of corneal edema. So if it's strictly corneal edema, I would not look to sinuses as my first reason to have that. Corneal edema can be treated with steroids. There are surgical uh, ways to correct corneal edema that can't be corrected with medications. Um, but there, the connection is really between where the sinuses are and its its proximity to the orbital tissues. But the cornea, uh, again, is a little uh, a structure further away, and I wouldn't necessarily relate corneal edema to facial sinus troubles. Great, great question. The Please. reason, may I ask another question? Sure. Um, a cornea transplant was recommended, and I have decided I don't want that. Now, cataracts are developing. Can cataracts be removed even though you have the edema of the cornea? If you've got mild corneal edema, yes, the cataracts can be removed. Sometimes the corneal edema can worsen even after an uncomplicated cataract surgery. And in that case, then the transplant may be the only way to get your vision better. Thank you, Kay. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, last question up. We lost. Linda had a question about depth perception in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and what do we know about that? I mean, it's not, not something I thought of, and I treat a lot of patients with Yeah, Alzheimer's this may disease. be a um, – so when, when one has Alzheimer's, obviously um, there's trouble with processing information. And if you look at the visual pathways in the brain, they are extensive. It's not just the optic nerve connecting to the visual cortex. There are all kinds of um, other pathways that can be affected, including uh, eye muscle movements. And so I would certainly, um, I could understand why someone might have trouble with depth perception just based on perhaps some of the way that the visual information gets processed in one who has uh, an organic brain disease. Well, Dr. Ratchford, thank you for thank your you so time much. today. This has been uh, exhausting, actually. I don't usually <laughs> get this many calls. I think we set a new record for calls, but all of them were excellent calls. And thank you for everything you do and your support of our program uh, so that we can get health information out to folks. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And for everyone to know, if you need to get in touch with Dr. Ratchford, it's 860 Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Mike Oakle has been on the board today. Next week, we're going to be chatting with several local charities about some of the good things going on in our community. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember, help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. Just go to registerme.org. Until next week, please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080, and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.